Hi, I'm Michaela Chapman, and I am co-hosting this episode of Chatter That Matters. You might have guessed from my last name that I am Tony's daughter. And Tony is many things, including being a father figure to many. And I've often wondered how he's managed relationships in terms of being a guardian figure to employees or a nurturing friend. And what it comes down to is his ability to give these kind of sugar-free schooling pep talks where he gets straight to the truth. He helps you get out of your funk, unlock your next step, and does so in a way that shows that he has love. I've always wondered if this was kind of a skill or, or more of an inherent strength. From my recent role working for an organization as their welding lead, I came across this app called Unmind. And Unmind is all about how to build better relationships in the workplace, how to improve employee well-being. And there's a course in particular about communication. And I came across this term, radical candor. My dad's face jumped out at me the second I read it, because it's all about showing someone you care personally, challenging them directly in a way that's not aggressive, that's not insincere, and really just shows you give a damn about the person. And so I text him immediately, hey dad, I found this term, you gotta read more about it. And we started to unravel where it came from, who coined it, and that's how we came across the lovely Kim Scott. Hi, I'm Kim Scott, and I'm the author of Radical Candor. It's a very simple idea, and if you can put it into practice, it will help you do the very best work of your life and build the best relationships of your career. And we were both blown away by your book, Kim, and immediately wanted to know more about where it came about, and more importantly, how you can use it to build better relationships in the workplace, outside of work, between parents and children, and essentially how to live a more fruitful life with those you. you just made my whole year. Thank you. That was such a great story. Tony, sorry I interrupted. Well, it's okay. I Now I, I'm going to try to find my way in, in this, into this interview because I think there's some mutual love. But first of all, my love for Michaela, that's my daughter's voice. I'm so proud of her. It's hard to look at her sometimes and realize she's this accomplished business leader living in England with her master's degree. And when she wrote to me and said, this reminds me of you, any dad's going to jump at that. <laughs> You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. But I want to talk about who we have. Kim, you're the author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. What a background, CEO coach at Dropbox, Twitter, other tech companies, faculty member at Apple University and before that at Google. And that isn't enough of a resume. You ran a pediatric clinic and started a diamond cutting factory in Moscow. So lots to unpack. What I'm really interested about is your two guiding principles of radical candor, caring personally, challenging directly, and how you use them to build a stronger relationship. And not just with the people at work, but I think why this is so important to my listeners, all who matter to you. Kim Scott, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much. I love being on your show. I love what you're doing. And Michaela, I hope that when my kids grow up, they will say something similar about me. I'm sure they will. And you know, Kim, I, I love you had the six minute audio clip describing it. I'm going to play a little bit of it, but it really talks about this high bar. It's a straightforward idea. And you really just say, if you put it into practice, it will help you do the very best work of your life and build the best relationships of your career. Talk to me about why you feel so passionate about why this is such a game changer. 
You know, when I became a leader for the first time, I started a software company uh, long ago and far away in 1999. And I came into work one day and about 10 people had emailed me the same article. And it's an article, it was an article about how people would rather have a boss who's a total asshole, but really competent than one who's really nice, but incompetent. <laughs> and I thought, are they sending me this because they think I'm a jerk or because they think I'm incompetent? And surely those are not my two choices. We can be our best selves and be successful at the same time. And so I think that is why I care so much about it. And I believe that the vast majority of people are are really kind, fundamentally kind, good people. They're often reluctant to challenge bad behavior or or subpar performance, but especially reluctant to challenge bad behavior, obnoxious aggression when they see it. But a minority of people tend towards obnoxious aggression. So if we can, all of the people in the world who are basically fundamentally good, kind people can do a little more challenging directly than the advantage that we cede to people who act obnoxiously aggressive will disappear and the world will be a better place. And what, what was your intention, I guess, in terms of what were you trying to avoid? It, it seems clear what you were trying to do with implementing the framework, but what, what kind of behaviors were you trying to combat? Sure. So if radical candor is caring personally and challenging directly at the same time, what happens when we fail on one dimension or another, which we are all bound to do? So sometimes we remember to challenge directly, but we forget to show that we care personally. And that I call obnoxious aggression. But I'm going to tell you about a mistake I made and a, a time when my boss was radically candid with me. So this happened shortly after I joined Google, and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO of Google about how the AdSense business was doing. Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire, and when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, the CEO almost fell off his chair. What did you say? This is incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineers? So I'm feeling like the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe I'm a genius. And when it was over, I walked out of the room. I walked past my boss, and I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And instead, she says to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And with this, I breathed a huge sigh of relief and I made a brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, yeah, I know it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. Then she said, I know this great speech coach. I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And I said, no, I'm busy. I made this brush off gesture again with my hand. And I said, I'm, I don't have time for a speech coach. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? She stopped. She looked me right in the eye and she said to me, I can tell when you do that thing with your hand. I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. And you might think it was mean of her to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't used just those words with me, and by the way, she would not have used those words with other people on her team who were perhaps better listeners than I was. But with me, if she hadn't used just those words, I never would have gone to visit the speech coach and I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said, um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had raised money from two different startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. It was almost like I suddenly realized I'd been marching through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth and nobody had 
had the common courtesy to tell me it was there. And she did. And as I thought about her management style, I realized that there were two things about her that made it possible. One, she cared personally about me, not just she didn't just care about me as an employee, as somebody who was going to achieve goals, but she cared about me at a human level. And she was willing to challenge me directly. She wasn't so concerned about not hurting my feelings in the short term that she would fail to tell me something I needed to know in the long run. So that's radical candor. That's what it is. Obnoxious aggression. I think we all know what being a jerk looks like. And I think we all know what manipulative insincerity looks like, uh, you know, where, where someone is talking badly, you know, says to your face, it's great, tells everybody else they think it's bad. But what about ruinous empathy? In order to explain to you what I mean by ruinous empathy, I'll tell you a story about possibly the most painful moment in my career. I had just hired this guy. We'll call him Bob. And I liked Bob a lot. He was smart. He was charming. He was funny. He would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite and we were playing one of those endless get to know you games and everybody was stressed out. And Bob was the guy who had the courage to raise his hand and say, hey, look, I can tell everybody really wants to get back to work. And what I would love to do is do something really fast. I've got an idea and it'll just take a second, but it'll help us get to know each other. He says, let's just go around the, the table and confess what candy our parents used when potty training us. Really weird, but really fast. Weirder yet, everybody remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there's a stressful moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. (laughs) So Bob brought a little levity to the office. Everybody loved working with Bob. One problem with Bob, he was doing terrible work. I was so puzzled. I couldn't understand what was going on because he had this incredible resume, this great history of accomplishments. I learned much later, actually, the problem was that Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy he had at all times. Uh, but I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that he was handing stuff into me and there was shame in his eyes. And I would say something along the lines of, oh, Bob, this is a great start. You're so awesome. You're so smart. Everybody loves working with you. Maybe you could make it just a little bit better, which, of course, he never did. So let's pause for a second. Why did I say that to Bob? Part of it was truly ruinous empathy. I really did like Bob, and I really did not want to hurt his feelings. But if I'm honest with myself, there was more than a little bit of manipulative insincerity going on there too, because Bob was popular on the team. And Bob was also kind of a sensitive guy. And I was afraid if I told Bob in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, that he would get upset. He might even start to cry, and then everyone would think I was a big you-know-what. And so the part of me that was worried about my reputation as a leader and as a person was the manipulative insincerity part. The part of me that was worried about Bob and his feelings, that was the ruinous empathy part. This goes on for 10 months. Eventually, the inevitable happens. And I realized that if I don't fire Bob, I'm going to lose all my top performers because they're frustrated. They're not able to do their best work because their deliverables are late when his deliverables are late. They can't spend as much time on their work as they would like to because they're having to constantly redo his work they're going to quit. They're going to go work at a place where they can they can do their best work unless I get rid of Bob. So I sat down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have started, frankly, 10 months previously. 
And when I finished explaining to him where things stood, he pushed his chair back from the table. He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question was going around in my head with no good answer, he looked at me again and he said, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realize that by not telling Bob, I thought I was being nice, but now I'm firing him as a result of not giving him an opportunity to fix the problem. Not so nice after all. All I could do in that moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Sometimes we remember to challenge directly, but we forget to show that we care personally. And this I call obnoxious aggression. In an early draft of Radical Candor, I called this the asshole quadrant because it seemed, I don't know, more radically candid. But I stopped doing that for a very important reason. As soon as I did that, people would use this framework to start writing names and boxes. And I beg of you, don't use this framework that way. Think about Radical Candor like a compass that is gonna help guide specific conversations that you're having with specific people to a better place. My guest today is Kim Scott. She's the author of Radical Candor, much of which was gained through her experiences working with some of the top Silicon Valley firms. Kim, my dad is always fascinated by the backstory of his guests and sometimes in an almost nosy way. But yours is, is interesting. It's fascinating on paper. So please take us back to where you grew up. So I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. And actually, my first lesson in Radical Candor came from my grandmother, When I was about six years old, I I forgot what I did wrong now. I think I I told a lie. And my grandmother got very, very angry with me and, and told me in no uncertain terms how bad my behavior was. And I was upset and I was crying. And she sat me down and she said, Kim, when people tell you you've done something wrong, if you can listen, you don't have to always agree with them. Maybe what you did was not wrong. But if you can listen to that and take it on board and decide when uh, they're right, when what they're telling you is correct and change, then you'll be better off your whole life. I told you that because I love you. I remember thinking about it later. I think I had all my great thoughts as a child sitting on my parents' toilet. I don't know why that was my <laughs> that was my thinking spot. But anyway, I remember sitting there on the john and saying, "You know what? Granny is right about that. I'm going to really try to to listen when people tell me I've made a mistake. I'm going to decide for myself whether I agree with them. Like radical candor doesn't mean that everybody's feedback that <laughs> they give you is correct. But I'm going to really listen. I'm going to try to really take it on board. So so I think that may be where it all began. I'm curious about how a girl from Memphis ends up in Moscow. I'm just fascinated by this sort of just throwing into your resume that I happen to be part of a diamond cutting operation. (laughs) So when I was a senior in high school, the U.S. Air Force did a reach out to the citizens of Memphis, Tennessee trip, and they flew us out to Omaha, Nebraska. And we sat down with a general, I don't shamefully remember who he was, but he was explaining to us 
that we needed enough nuclear weapons to blow up the world four times over. And I remember thinking, this can't be right. But, you know, he seems like a very responsible individual and everybody seems to be agreeing with him. So that prompted me to study the so it was the Soviet Union. This was long ago and far away. This was like 1985. But when I got to college, I studied the arms race, and and I also studied Russian literature. Today, this resonates differently given Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Russian literature really explores why some people have this happy, productive life and why other people are so miserable <laughs> and uh, and what individuals can do, but also what, what are the systems that create misery? That is the reason why I love to write, but that also is the question that I came to realize in my first job in, in Moscow was at the heart of good management. So I had to, at one point, I had to start this diamond cutting factory. I didn't have to, but I decided to. That meant I needed to hire these diamond cutters, these Russian diamond cutters. And at this point, I was, I don't know, 23 years old. I had no business, you know, my, my whole experience was reading Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And I sort of had this very disdainful attitude about business. I thought, ah, oh, it's just about money and spreadsheets. It's kind of boring and kind of easy. All you have to do to hire people is to pay them. And I had dollars and the ruble was collapsing. So I thought, what could be easier than hiring these guys? So I went to meet with them. I expected them all immediately to say yes, but they, they didn't say yes right away. They wanted to have a picnic. So I thought, well, okay, I can pay them and I can have a picnic. I can do that too. And so we went out to the outskirts of Moscow and drank a bottle of vodka together. And by the time we got to the bottom of the bottle of vodka, what these guys wanted was to know that it wasn't just money. They wanted to know they had a boss who cared enough about them to get them out of Russia if things went sideways there. So as you can imagine, uh, I've been thinking a lot about these about these guys since the invasion because things have gone badly sideways in, in Russia now. And it was at that moment that I realized management is actually just as interesting as reading great novels. Like it's about building relationships with people and also building systems, building management systems that – help people do the best work of their lives uh, and build the best relationships of their career. You hear a lot these days about the great resignation, and it sounds quite similar to those diamond cutters, people switching it up, transitioning, entering new careers, new jobs to find somewhere they feel a sense of purpose or value or protection or whatnot. And I happen to be one of those people. I'm in between jobs right now. And I'd love to know what your advice would be for a way, a method to narrow in on an environment or people who really get it right and get it right in the sense that they, you know, show their love, show their truth. Is there a way, do you think, that you can walk into an office and know how to portray yourself and also how to get the best from others? First of all, I want to congratulate you. The best career advice I ever got was don't forget to quit. So if you're in a bad situation... <laughs> Make sure, or even if you're not in a terrible situation, but you feel like it's a suboptimal situation, quit, get out if you, if you possibly can, if you're lucky enough. And I want to acknowledge my own privilege. I, I could afford to quit. When you are interviewing for a new job, I think the first thing you want to do is you want to get the offer, right? So don't go in with a great deal of skepticism. I find when I'm interviewing, it's really helpful 
to go in, even if I'm not sure I want that job, to go in playing the role of someone who does want that job uh, and see how that feels. So, for example, when I was when I got the opportunity to interview at Google, I did not want to go to California. I didn't want to leave Manhattan. I didn't want to move to California. And I was very skeptical. And I was having dinner with a friend. And she said, Kim, and I really needed this job. Like, I was running out of money very quickly. And I wasn't getting jobs in New York. And she said, Kim, just go and be present. So I think that was the best interview advice I ever got. Now, when I got to Google, I had this realization that the kind of environment that I had tried to create in my startups, but had kind of failed to create, they had created at Google at that at that moment. I remember walking around and, you know, there was a barbecue going on and there was people playing volleyball, including one of the founders was playing volleyball. Like, I knew that this was, that you know, that there weren't empty foosball tables that were there to pretend like people were, people were actually fully engaged uh, with each other there. So I had a, a strong in- instinct. So now I got the offer. Now what I needed to do was to get into an argument with my boss, the person who was going to be my boss, in order to find out what that felt like, because you're going to have arguments, you know? And I had questions, you know, even though I had this good gut feel, I also had a lot of questions. That was really helpful because it was a good conversation. It was a fruitful conversation. I learned that my boss was open to feedback, that she was also willing to tell me when I was pushing too hard. So don't forget to quit, go and be present, and then have have a conflict before you take the job. (laughs) See what that feels like. When you walk into a company with swagger, I just had a guest on that talks about swagger, but someone that company that really knows it's going places. Do you think that people will put radical candor in check because they don't want to show any vulnerability or humility that they just that, you know, everything's great here and I'm great here? Sometimes you create this illusion, this, you know, instead of this imposter syndrome, in fact, the entire halo around the company is somewhat of an imposter. Yeah. I mean, look, they say success is a great deodorant, right? Success will cover up all kinds of bad behavior, especially if you're interviewing at a company with swagger, as you say. I think it's a good, good way to put it. You want, you want to ask the questions. You want to ask the, the hard questions, like what was a big mistake? When I was a at Google, this was after I had taken the job, but it would have been interesting to ask the question. A big mistake was made. We, I was leading AdSense and, and one of the engineers working on the product reversed exchange rates. So, so if, you know, if your exchange rate was two to one to the dollar, you got paid, you know, half, half a dollar instead of two dollars. You know, that was a big deal for, for, and we had millions of publishers at, at the time. And I remember going to the product manager, like, enraged. How could this happen? Blah, 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 blah. She told me about some other much bigger mistake that had been made in the past. And and so I think the thing that Google was very good at in those early days was being willing to make mistakes and fix them quickly. I mean, that was sort of core to the idea. You wanted to, you know, launch and iterate. There's a big difference, by the way, between launch and iterate and move fast and break things. <laughs> um, I heard recently an employee at Facebook uh, sent me a picture. Uh, there's a big banner there now that says, slow down and fix your shit. 
So don't move fast and break things. But being being willing to make mistakes and then acknowledge the mistakes and fix them, I think, is core to, to innovation. So ask about big mistakes that have been made and how quickly mistakes get acknowledged and fixed. I mean, one of the things that we did at, when I was at Google is this whoops-a-daisy. So I would get up in front of the team and I would tell the whole team about a big mistake that I had made that week. And then I would put, I had a stuffed daisy actually, and then I'd put 20 bucks and I'd say, nominate yourself for whoops. And the person who made the biggest mistake this week is going to get, have this stuffed daisy on their desk for a week. So celebrating mistakes, I think is a big deal. Hi, it's Michaela Chapman. When we return, Kim will share more ways you can apply the principles of radical candor to your life and your career. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast, Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. And in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. Radical candor is sort of universally human. It's about love and truth at the same time. And those are pretty universal human values. But it's culturally relative. And so the way it gets expressed culture to culture is different. So so you need to adjust. Uh, one of the things I say about radical candor is that it gets measured at the listener's ear, not at the speaker's mouth. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My co-host today is Michaela Chapman. Yes, my daughter, armed with a master's degree in psychology. I couldn't think of a better co-host to talk to the world-renowned thinker, Kim Scott. Kim, I love the way that you, you avoid labeling people, and that really comes across in your book. I think there's only two points where, where you speak about labels, and that's in referring to rock stars and superstars. And I won't go into that. I'll let every audience member read your book to find out more but what I'm interested in is you personally have you ever been labeled or put in a box or even challenged directly in your own framework and and if so how have you gone about switching that up yeah I mean look I've been labeled I, I think we've all been labeled in ways that we don't like being labeled I think in when I was when I was a kid growing up in Memphis I was called my father's name was Alan uh, and I was called Alan's Little Pinko because, because I was, uh, uh, I had different political views than many of his friends. After Radical Candor came out, I was, I was giving a talk at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company was someone who I liked and respected enormously, who I had worked with for the better part of a decade, and one of too few black women CEOs in tech, or frankly, in any other sector. And when I finished giving the talk, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm really excited to roll out Radical Candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture that I want at this company. But I got to tell you, Kim, it's much harder 
for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she went on to explain to me that as soon as she would offer anyone even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And as soon as she said it to me, I had four revelations at the same time. The first one was that I had been in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to her. And as a result, I had not been the kind of colleague a uh, supportive colleague that I aspire to be, that I imagine myself to be. I'd failed to be what I call an upstander for her. The second thing I realized was that not only had I been in denial about what was happening to her as a black woman, I had also been in denial about the kinds of things that happened to me as a white woman in tech. I, I had sort of pretended that a whole host of things were not happening that were in fact happening. Me being labeled as not likable or abrasive or bitchy or whatever. You know, it was kind of hard for the author of a book called Radical Candor to admit I had been in denial, but I never wanted to think of myself as a victim. So I just kind of brushed past a whole bunch of things. But even less than wanting to think of myself as a victim, that I want to think of myself as the guilty party. And so I'd been most deeply in denial about the ways in which I had uh, inadvertently, but I had harmed people by labeling them or judging them or just saying or doing biased things. And the fourth thing that I realized was that as a leader, I hadn't actually created these kinds of environments that I was trying to create, that I was imagining that I was creating. I hadn't created these kinds of environments that were bias and BS-free zones. And that is actually what that, you know, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And that was some really good feedback that I got. And it prompted me to write my next book, which is called Just Work. There's many, many stories in Just Work about about getting labeled unfairly. And I think if we, if we want to pull it back to the radical candor framework, there's a couple of dynamics that are worth being aware of. The first is that if you are underrepresented along any dimension. So if you're, if you're a woman in a male dominated industry, if you're, if you're not white in a white dominated industry, uh, that's what I mean by underrepresentation. And you offer radical candor, you're often going to get unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression, kind of the way the CEO of that company had, had been. And what you need to do in that case, I mean, first of all, if you are, shall we say, overrepresented, make sure you're not doing that to people. But if that's happening to you, you want to take an extra beat to move up on the care personally dimension. You want to say, look, I want to tell you this thing because I can tell you really care about the project and I want you to succeed. Don't get sucked into doing like all the office housework or all the emotional labor on your team, but take an extra beat to show that you care. That can really help. I had worked at Apple for about a year when this guy that I was working with looked at me and he's like, oh, you really care about this. That's why you're being such a pain in my ass. And I realized I should have like shown a little more care personally earlier and it would have been less frustrating for him. So that's one thing. The other thing that happens is that very often if you are a leader who is overrepresented and you're managing people who are underrepresented, you're like, you're more prone to be ruinously empathetic with your feedback. You're more prone not to give feedback. You're prone to do that for a couple of reasons. One, because you, you want to make sure you're being extra kind to people who probably experienced more bias, prejudice, and bullying than others. But you're also doing that, I would, I mean, I, and I'm guilty of this myself. 
I have also, when I've done that, it's also been because I'm a little bit more afraid. And that's the manipulative insincerity part, not the ruinous empathy part. So remember, if you're a leader, it's your job to give everyone equal opportunity feedback. Uh, it's not your job to pull your punches with people who are underrepresented because that does them a disservice. It hurts their career. Uh, there's a great article um, called Protective Hesitation written by the president of, of Morehouse College about this phenomenon. So th- those are some ways that sort of radical candor across difference plays out. And you see it a lot in cancel culture as well. I mean, I... I've always been intrigued by the brutality of cancel culture, culture in the sense that people are canceled without giving an opportunity to try or redeem themselves or practice almost in the way that you're practicing new language. You need to give yourself the opportunity to use the wrong word, correct your vocabulary. And as long as the intention is there, you'll probably end up getting to the place where you can speak the language that needs to be said. But I'm always being surprised by the way people just don't give others the opportunity or the space. Yeah, one one of the things that I recommend that leaders do is they create a sort of a bias disruption norm on their team. And there's three parts to this. The first part is sort of a shared vocabulary. The second part is a shared norm. And the third part is a shared commitment. So by shared vocabulary... I mean, what's the word or phrase that you and your team are going to use to flag bias when you notice it? Because it's really hard to know what to say in those moments. And you want to make sure everyone is aware of it. It shouldn't be the targets of the bias. It should be the upstanders, mostly, who are flagging bias. So on my team, I actually have... I have a purple flag and we'll wave it in Zoom, purple flag. Another team I work with just says, yo. And so if you're in a meeting and somebody says, yo, that means someone else has said or done something biased. Uh, another team, they'll say, ouch. And then the person who said or did the biased thing can say, oops, and then you can move on. And the reason why a shared vocabulary and sort of disrupting it in the moment is important is because if you don't disrupt bias in the moment, you actually reflect and reinforce it. It's going to happen again and again and again. And then the people who are the targets of the bias get kind of this repetitive stress injury. And by the way, the shared vocabulary should be kind. It's not like you're not canceling the person. You're, you're doing them a favor. You're being radically candid. You're pointing out a mistake that they want to correct. The shared norm is what to do when you're on the receiving end. When you've gotten some feedback, you've just said or done something biased. I don't know about you, but when I get that kind of feedback that I've been biased, I feel deeply ashamed. And I rarely respond at my best when I feel ashamed. So one of the things that I encourage leaders to do is teach people to say, thank you for pointing it out. And either I get it or I don't get it. The I don't get it thing is really hard to say because now I'm doubly ashamed. I'm ashamed because I just harmed someone and I'm ashamed because I'm ignorant. I don't know what I did wrong. But we're all in that situation. We're all accidentally stepping on each other's toes. And so if we can learn to say, I don't get it, please tell me after the meeting. And the reason I say talk about it after the meeting is because you want to disrupt the bias without totally dis- disrupting and derailing the whole meeting. And and it should happen really in every meeting. And that brings me to a shared commitment. You want to make sure that if you get to the end of a, of a meeting and no bias has been flagged, then that probably doesn't mean that no bias was present in the meeting. It probably means that either people didn't notice or they didn't feel comfortable. So you want to save an extra minute at the end of the meeting for you know what was said 
or done that was biased that that we didn't notice? I'm an optimist when it comes to my life, but I'm a pessimist when I see what's happening around us with this sort of relentless storm and negativity and divide and conquer. And it's it's me versus you. It's red versus blue. It's east versus west. Your case, north versus south. How does radical candor work to try to get people back to the middle ground versus this growing divide? You know, I love that question. Recently, I was asked to speak for a for a policy. It was called the Policy Network. And I assumed they were kind of a bunch of policy wonks. And so I agreed readily. And then when we were on the prep call, like one day before I was going to get on the airplane, I realized that this was an ultra conservative policy group. And, and I would say I'm probably ultra liberal. So I said to them, I said, look, I'm happy to come and talk to you all. But if you take a look at my Twitter feed, you'll find out I disagree with pretty much every policy, uh, that, that you are advocating for. And, and they were wide open to it. And so I was like, well, if they're game, I'm game. And I remember standing up in front of them and talking about radical candor. And again, as, as I say, it's sort of universally human. These people all believed in love and truth just as, as firmly as I do. And I remember having this very strong thought, looking out over the audience, and we were taking questions and having a good conversation. And I remember thinking, these people are not my enemies. These people are my fellow Americans, and I need to learn how to talk to them. And after the meeting, a woman came up to me, and she sat down, and she said, you know, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? And we had, we were way on different sides of the spectrum on everything she mentioned, you know, guns, abortion. And she kind of cocked her head and she looked at me and she said, you don't seem like an evil person. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't think I am an evil person. Like, let's talk. You know, I think it's really important. We learn how to challenge each other's beliefs and and policies uh, but still care about them at the same time. Martin Buber wrote a beautiful book called I Thou, and he talks about sort of relationships where you notice like the whole person as opposed to one aspect of the person and the sort of the miracle of a whole person. And he said, imagine a tree that has a branch that you think is broken, you know, that you think maybe needs trimming. Um, If all you focus on is that one branch of the tree or the disease that that branch may have, then you have one feeling about the tree. But if you focus on the whole tree, then you have a very different feeling about the tree. And so I think that if we can begin to have conversations with people, even people that who we disagree vehemently with, where we're, we're starting out from a place of caring and curiosity, get curious, not furious, but not, we're not backing off our challenge. We're not, we're not pretending to believe something that we don't believe. If something, if we think a policy is wrong, we say very clearly that it's wrong without condemning that person as an evil human being. Then I think we can get to a better, more reasonable place. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is Kim Scott, and I'm co-hosting today with my daughter, Michaela Chapman. Kim, we've spent time discussing your groundbreaking work in business, 
speak to us about how it applies to feedback, coaching, or general conversations outside of work. You know, I wrote a whole book. It's called Virtual Love. Nobody ever published it, but so it's self-published on Amazon. And, and that book is about how I was applying what I was learning about radical candor and, and management to my love life. And uh, as I wrote the book, I got out of a bad relationship and into a happy marriage. So, so it works at home as well. Uh, it is, I, I, you know, sometimes I'll give a radical candor talk and somebody will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, gosh, if I had heard this talk five years ago now, I wouldn't be divorced. Uh, because what, what damages our relationships is not disagreement. It's not challenging directly. It's unspoken disagreement. It's, it's ruinous empathy because what happens is things that are bothering us, things that are hurting us, they pile up and they pile up. And eventually it's like nuclear waste. And if you don't dispose of it properly, it goes critical and blows up like a dirty bomb all over your relationship. So you want to make sure that you are, you're not nitpicking. Like some good advice I've heard about relationships is leave three unimportant things unsaid every day. Uh, so, so, or I was at a friend's wedding. And, uh, and it was on an island with a weak septic system. There were signs over every toilet that said, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. And her godfather stood up and said, these are words to stay married by. You know, you, you don't, you, you know, you don't, you, you don't have to have every single argument. But if it is important to you, you better say it to this person who you love. Because if you don't, then, then they're going to start to drive you bonkers and you're going to, you're going to flee the relationship. But Kim, as a, as a parent, you know, and you have the currency of parent and obviously that currency changes as your child gets older and wiser. But there's times when you see them hurt, vulnerable, afraid, pushed on their back feet, even knocked over. And you just want to give them a hug and at the same time, sometimes clear the path for them. What advice can you give to parents on how to apply radical candor to help that child get to where they want to go, but not be the helicopter that flies in there? That's the hardest job of, of all the jobs in life, I think. One of the things that I say, both both in a management setting, but in any relationship, is that there's an order of operations to radical candor. And it always begins with soliciting feedback, with, with asking the person, you know, what am I doing? What should I do or stop doing that would make this relationship easier? You know, my kids remind me with some frequency <laughs> that usually what, what I'm doing wrong is trying to solve their problems instead of just listening. Your kids will tell you. They will tell you. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my kids had no school. So I decided that they were going to write a journal and I was going to read their journal intro entry every day. And after about a week of this, my son wrote, mom, it is a global pandemic. Chill out. <laughs> and I realized he was exactly right. You know, I needed to, <laughs> needed to just back off. Uh, and so I think the most important thing a parent can do is is to be open to the feedback and to be sensitive to it even when it's when it's not uh w when it's not made explicit one of the most 
helpful analogies I got about parenting is that you're like the edge of the swimming pool. And mostly your kid wants to swim, but occasionally they need to come hang on to the edge. And it's your job to be there. Yeah, I would say I'm interested in, I guess, a sense of trust. How how important is trust in breathing life into radical candor? Can you be radically candid without trust? Can you have a successful relationship with someone that you just simply don't trust? Or do you think there is another route to go around? Kind of flip the question also, can you trust someone who's not being radically candid with you? So I would I would argue that the seeds of trust the seeds of psychological safety are sown in radical candor, both soliciting it and giving it. So it's a give and take kind of thing. It's a, it's a conversation. If you are in a relationship with someone who you don't trust, radical candor, so there's, can help you regain trust. But it won't always. I mean, at some point when trust is broken, the relationship is broken and the, the answer is to end the relationship. Radical candor will not allow you to have a relationship with every single person on the planet. Like, I, uh, um, uh, there are people with whom, uh, I can't have relationships, not because sometimes because they're, they're truly bad people, but rarely, almost never. Usually the reason is that we just have different approaches to life. And there are times when you are trapped. Uh, on a team with someone who you don't necessarily like or trust, but you, it's not your, you know, you don't want to quit. They're not going to quit. So you're stuck together. I think in those cases, what you want to do, you know, you, you can't go all the way up on the care personally dimension. You cannot love someone who you don't like or trust, but you can show them common human decency, you know, and that's kind of above the line in terms of care personally. And I think that is the one thing that we owe to everyone. So one of the things, for example, when I've had peers who I don't, who I feel like I can't trust, one of the things I've tried to do is to make sure if, if we have a disagreement, we escalate cleanly. Uh, and I can't control what they're going to do, but I can control what how I'm going to respond. And so I'll go to this person. I'll say, look, if if you and I have a disagreement, I would like a commitment from you that you'll go to our boss with me, and I will give you that same commitment. And even if I don't trust that they're going to live up to that commitment, I can live up to that commitment. And, and that is going to make a big difference. Kim, I was a couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of being over in England with my daughter. And she, start, she started off this podcast with a nice compliment to me. And I couldn't believe her life. I mean, she's surrounded by friends, family, eyes shining, and she's just walking with such confidence. What I really struck me about her is that she's an observer and a voyeur. She's always looking around for patterns. And I think she's kind of been that way her whole life, but it really brought my attention. And in some ways, listening to you, it reminds me that you're very similar, that you're you're not resting on just radical candor. You've already talked about your next book, but you're just about how humans interact. So what I'd love to end the show on is what is next for Kim Scott? I, like you, am very worried and upset about the state of discourse uh, in, 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 in the country and in the world, the sort of move towards authoritarianism around the world. And also, the I have twins who are 13. 
they're kind of pessimistic about the future. And when I grew up, I was quite optimistic about the future. And so what I am doing is I'm writing a novel right now that imagines a future in which we've sorted all this out. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying to, uh, at least imagine a world in which this all works out. Uh, even if I can't control everything in the real world, I can at least imagine a better place. And I think that, uh, can help us move a step in the direction of a, of, of mending a broken world. So Kim, I always end my show with my three observations. And because I have a co-host today, I'm going to also ask her to give one of the three. So Michaela, do you want to go first or should I go first? Yeah, I'd be happy to go first. Kim, I think what I've gathered from your explanation of radical candor, how to apply it in the world, is really that it's a compass. It's not a judgment. It's, it's to help guide people to have better relationships, to help get them where they need to go, but also to help other people get where they need to go as well. When you compared it to love and truth, kind of the two fundamentals, I think that really hit home with me, which you know, in some cases, love is more important. In some cases, truth is. But at the end of the day, if you have both, you're likely going to succeed. Never follow my daughter. That's the, that's the first lesson I've got. <laughs> what I took away, which I really like, is your heart. You know, as, as smart as you are and as articulate you are, when you talked about the guy with candy that you had to let go and he said, why didn't you tell me? I thought you cared. It really showed me that this isn't about five steps to this or five steps for that. This is about the connections between human beings and elevating them in a way that people can walk away better for it. And then the final thing was when we talked about finding the middle ground and use words like curious, not furious, and let's just find a way to talk. And I hope your novel and I hope your calling is to do your little bit to push back on what we both see as a world where, you know, it's much more dictatorship versus democracy that I think if we can get human beings to be less scared about me versus them and much more about each other and apply this concept of radical candor we will be a much better planet for it so Kim Scott on behalf of myself and Michaela Chowder <laughs> I love having my daughter's first time ever as a co-host I know that in the very near future she's probably going to be introducing me as her guest host but listen I really appreciate you being part of Chatter That Matters thank you so much I love the conversation with both of you and, uh, and radical candor is never more important than from a parent. So I love starting that way. Joining me now is Alan DePonce. He's the Chief Marketing Officer of RBC. Alan, difficult times for marketers because there's a growing cynicism. There's a lot of uh, people standing on shifting sand. They're looking to blame. How does a brand navigate this climate when you're going out with good intentions, when you're trying to do good things, knowing that, that there's always going to be people sitting in their armchair ready to fire social media slingshots? I think the most important thing that we try to do is really understand our purpose as an organization, make sure we have the culture that we need internally with all our staff and employees, and have conviction of you know our overall plan of delivering against that purpose. And what are the right programs and strategies we're going to use to to bring it to life? But we're not perfect. You know, sometimes when we do things, we overlook specific situations or uh, we get feedback. The, the great thing about social media is uh, you get lots of feedback. And sometimes the downside of social media is you 
get a lot of feedback that maybe you don't want to hear. But I think you you need to be open to listening and constantly thinking about, are you on the right track and learning to grow over time? How do you keep your the younger generation inspired and motivated because they might read something or their parents might read something and, and bring it to the dinner table where they feel they have to defend? How, how do you let them know that this is just the reality of the world today and it's okay to have opposing points of view? I think it starts with your culture. I think it starts with uh, communication of really helping under, everybody understand what is our overall purpose as an organization, what is our overall strategy, what are those programs we're going to lean into. I think we also have to be transparent. Uh, and I think the wonderful thing about RBC is we have a culture where people are not afraid to speak up and ask questions and, and challenge things, which I think is good. It helps us see different lenses. And as you get those different lenses, you actually make better outcomes and you make better decisions. So I think you're, if you think of your employees as that first kind of feedback mechanism, you'll probably learn a lot more before you go to market that you don't probably want to learn if you put something in market and it's kind of kind of just off the mark of it. And I'm curious as a leader nowadays where we are sometimes walking on eggshells because we're dealing with a lot of current of change. You know, we're dealing with gender equality. We're dealing with diversity. We're dealing with how an organization must stand beyond profit. Is it hard to give the individual the kind of feedback that they deserve? As she says, feedback that is has empathy, but it's also very... Very candid. Well, I, I actually love the concept of radical candor and all the guiding principles of it. And I, I actually is one of the few things that I kind of think back to as, as part of my leadership journey. And also as, as part of our team, I think our organization at RBC has embraced it. You know, I think the guiding principle that I, that I start with is you can't grow as an individual unless you get feedback. Like if you're a professional athlete, and you don't have a coach telling you, like, just take a tennis player and, and you know, you're working on your forehand. The great part about having a coach is they tell you what you're doing well and what areas that you can improve on. And they do it because they care about you and they want you to succeed. So if you take that same guiding principle for radical candor, you as a leader should want to give candid feedback to your employee, as well as receive candid feedback from them to you so that you can be, so that you can grow. And it's just normal to get both positive feedback and maybe feedback that's not so good. But it starts with the concept of caring. And I think that's the piece that most resonates with me is if someone's giving me feedback and I know they care about me, then I'm more apt to listen to it. If they're just giving me feedback and I don't think they care about me, then I'm probably gonna discount it. I think the most important thing as a leader is to create an environment and a muscle that, you know, feedback is a good thing. That's how we grow, that's how we get better. I think the worst or least helpful feedback I've ever received is when I only get positive feedback. Nobody's perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. But when they don't share their true thoughts or they sugarcoat constructive points, it really doesn't help you grow as an individual. And I'm not saying that you should go out and give people really hard critiques, but have the respect to be honest and constructive. If you really care about that individual, you want them to help them, help them grow and succeed through constructive feedback. I thank you for letting me be part of that as well and uh, continued success is the, uh, in your uh, marketing role. I appreciate it. Thank you. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Thank you so much for your time. Go forth and be radically candid. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.